Much of today's heavier music has departed from the themes of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. I guess there's really only so much that you can sing about that. But there's been a shift in focus, and that shift has been to the spiritual realm or to the unseen realm, or what many would refer to as the supernatural realm. Well, though there's a great deal of interest on the part of many in the hard rock and metal communities in the unseen realm, there's very little interest in much of the professing church, and unfortunately, there's a very little understanding in the church about this world that we just don't see. And because of this lack of interest and minuscule understanding, the church appears to be just an agency of men with a lot of rules and regulations rather than a divine agency that has the supernatural power to transform lives with the power of the gospel. Well, tonight we're going to start to tear the mask off of the unseen realm. And with me, I have a very special guest. It's Dr. Michael Heiser. He's a Bible scholar. He's a Christian author and podcaster, and his expertise is in the spiritual realm. He is most known for his book entitled The Unseen Realm, Recovering the Supernatural Worldview of the Bible. And he's also taught at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, as well as Liberty University Theological Seminary, where yours truly went to seminary as well. Dr. Heiser, thank you so much for joining Raven's Heart this evening. This is an absolute pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Here's the, here's the big question. You know, a lot of times when we talk about the unseen realm, we think of the dichotomy between angels from above and demons from below. But in your book, The Unseen Realm, you talk about this whole complex um, society, really, of, of unseen creatures. What is it that we're missing in Western Christianity, especially these things called other gods that are mentioned in the Bible? Can you share with us about that, please? This is kind of a classic example of stuff you don't hear in church, you know, that's actually in your Bible. And there are a lot of reasons why, you know, we never hear this stuff. I think fundamentally is, and, and a lot of Christians don't want to sort of acknowledge this or think on these terms, but I think fundamentally the, the church gets its doctrine in this area largely mediated through tradition. That is, by definition, it's not a biblical theology uh, of the unseen realm. And it's obscured to us through, in some cases, Bible translation uh, you know, that just sort of muddies the waters that, you know, where we can't see what's actually in the text. In some cases, it, it's, it's not even in the text because, for instance, we're not using really the oldest manuscript information that we have, for instance, the Dead Sea Scrolls. So there will be things that aren't in, you know, the typical Christian's Bible that actually was in the Bible. And in some, in some cases, it traverses onto this territory of the unseen realm. So, you know, those are some of the reasons. But if you think about what's going on historically, the sort of the power brokers of the early church, and I don't want to use that term negatively. It's just, you know, it's the leadership, and they, they did the best they could. But... The some of the famous church fathers like Augustine, you know, Augustine, if you prefer, you know, Chrysostom, Tertullian, Irenaeus, you know, these are, these are famous people. But they're 300, 400 years removed from the New Testament. When you get to the Old Testament, they're like over a millennium removed. And you can count on one hand the ones that know Hebrew. Literally, that's not an exaggeration. 
And so they are divorced from the original context of the Old Testament, where a lot of this real strange stuff you know, is found. They're over a millennium removed from that. They don't know the languages. They don't know the primary sources. And so it, you know, they, they more or less just create summaries of ideas and pass them on to Christians. And that's where we get church tradition. We also, we also have a problem with getting church tradition by manufacturing answers to questions that the Bible is either silent about or it has quite a different answer if you were you know, again, dealing with the primary sources uh, at the time of, you know, when the Bible was actually written. So there's a number of reasons why when you go to church now, it's like, okay, there's black hats and white hats. Black hats are the bad guys, the demons, the good hats are the angels. We're done. We never really, you know, look back, you know, penetrating the English and, and, and see other multiple Elohim, you know, other gods. In the text, you know, the church tradition says, oh, those were just idols. Nobody, you know, believed in them. Well, when, when God says, you know, at, at the last plague of, the, you know, the ten plagues against Egypt, this night I will have victory over the gods of Egypt. Was he kidding? You know, did, did he wink and say, well, we're going to have victory over the gods of Egypt. Wink, wink. You know, they don't really exist, but we're going to, I'm going to sound big and tough here. <laughs> you know, there, there's all sorts of things like that going on in, in the biblical world. And, and we don't recognize these things because most people, again, in the pew, you know, who spend a, you know, any time with the Bible, has it sort of filtered and mediated to them by church tradition or denominational tradition. And it's only when you, you know, you willingly choose to move past those things and get into the text itself and try to read it like an ancient person would, that you start to see a whole lot of things that, again, you don't hear in church. And this is what I try to do in my writing. I try to ferret these things out and present them in a decipherable way to people who are interested, you know, who care. Um, because, hey, if you're going to sit there and call it the Word of God, you might want to invest some time into it. And you might want to see what it says as opposed to what some authority figure tells you it says. That's um, really interesting how everything has kind of been filtered out and we make stuff up and, and talk about things that we really don't know what we're talking about. And I, I was introduced to your teachings probably about six months ago and I started listening to them. And I, first I was like, oh, wow, I'm not so sure about this. But then as I started to study scripture, I was like, oh, okay, this makes sense now, especially Psalm 82, where it talks about there being other Elohim or other gods. And in the twisted theology I've heard, it's like, well, you know, we're all gods, you know, and everything like that. Well, that doesn't make any sense at all. And, and what you teach, yeah, <laughs> makes sense. So in reference to Psalm 82 with the other Elohim, why did God create other Elohim and why did he create a divine council? Because, I mean, he's all-knowing and he's all-powerful. Why does he even want something like that? Well, for the sake of your your viewers and your listeners, you know we're we're not making this up. I mean, Psalm eighty two. This was my watershed event. This is, you know, sort of the the crossroads for me as I had to decide whether I was going to read the Bible with the ancient Israelite in my head and the first century Jew in my head, or, or you know, do something modern like my own denominational preferences or something. 
the, ver the very first verse says in, in Hebrew, uh, Elohim, that's a very common term for God, Nitzah Ba'adat El. And I'm not going to bore anybody with the grammar, but the Elohim there is one. So capital G, God stands or takes a stand in the divine council or the council of God. And then the next line says, Bekerav Elohim. There's that word again. Bekerav Elohim Yishpot. In the midst of the gods, he, the first one, is passing judgment. And you have a divine council, divine assembly meeting. It sounds like a pantheon. And that's what I was struck with the first time I was challenged to read this in Hebrew instead of English. And, you know, we could go off in all sorts of directions for this. I mean, Elohim, it turns out, is just a, it's just a term that means a spiritual being. So the Bible presents a world that is, is a, a supernatural world that is very animated. It has lots of players in it. It has, it has ranks and hierarchies. It's not just angels and demons. You have gods, you've got multiple rebellions, not just what happens in the Garden of Eden at the fall. You know, God has lots of enemies, both in the earthly sphere and the heavenly sphere. But again, all this gets obscured through tradition. And, and those who are loyal to him, those who remain loyal to him, because God has created them with free will, he shares his attributes with them, one of which is freedom. Those who are loyal to him are his, you know, ongoing counsel. Now, it, the metaphor here is not about God you know, needing good ideas or not being able to sort of think through problems. The, the, the metaphor is designed to teach us that from the, the very beginning, when God creates a being, whether it's in the spiritual world or, or the human world, in our case, whom he shares his attributes with, he wants participation. He grants participation. So there will be passages where God decrees things. First Kings 22 is an obvious one. It's time for Ahab to die, finally. And then God lets the members of his council decide, okay, how are we going to carry this out? I have decreed it. How, how are we going to get it done? So God, God favors participation with beings like himself because one of the, the reason for the creative impulse is that he wants to have a relationship with, with his creatures. And he can't do that with the animal kingdom. He can only do that with beings who he makes like himself, whether they're in the spiritual world or not. So, you know, it's not that God is, you know, is sort of just lazy and letting things go and let the underlings handle all this. Or I, I don't, I'm, out, I'm out of good ideas now. He wants participation. He wants partnership. He wants a heavenly family and an earthly family. And originally they were designed to be one. He wants them with him in his presence, fit for sacred space, to have a relationship, and then to be a partner with him to do the things he wants to get done. And so you, that can happen in, with respect to judgment, like Ahab. It can happen with respect to turning the rest of the world you know, into Eden. That was the Adam and Eve you know, situation. So it's positive and negative. But this is, this is why God has, has a, a counselor, a host. Um, he wants participation. He likes it. It's his impulse to have this kind of working relationship with creatures who he it's, you know, something that God's really been stirring in me over the past several months is the idea of sonship and participating with him and the things that he's called us to do on earth, especially with things that he's 
called me to do. And speaking of participation, I do have we do have quite a few viewers this evening, and I appreciate everybody joining us for this live stream. Uh, we do have Warriors of Light, uh, awesome band from Tennessee, El Victoria and Braden. We also have Michael Will. He is the lead singer from a band called Winner's Resurrection, and we are getting looked at in Ireland tonight by Aaron Von Graham. Thank you for joining us this evening. So I'd like to ask this question. I kind of like to go back to angels because there's a lot of fascination with angels. There's a class of angels called watchers. Now, I never heard this term when I was at Liberty University. I never heard it at church. The first place I heard it was in a song by Sleeping Romance called The Devil's Cave. What is a watcher? What do they do? And do they still exist today? Yeah, a, a, a watcher is, again, the, the vocabulary is assigned to certain members of the heavenly host. It's used four times in the book of Daniel. It's an Aramaic term. Hira uh, is the singular. It's, it becomes a lot more common in what we call the Second Temple period, the intertestamental Jewish period, you know, between the time of the Old Testament and before the New Testament begins. The book of Enoch, for instance, favors the term watcher, at least in the first 36 chapters. It's used all the time. So, you know, what does the term denote? In my, in my angels book, in, in the first chapter, I, I talk about some of the difficulty with vocabulary for the heavenly host. You, know, you essentially have three kinds of terms, three buckets. You have terms that tell you what a thing is, what a member of the heavenly host is by nature, like spirits. Then you have terms that, that tell you where a thing ranks in the hierarchy. Sons of God is actually one of those because it's language drawn from the royal court in the ancient Near East. And then the third bucket is basically job descriptions. Angel, that's one of those. Malak in Hebrew is just a messenger. It's a job description. So watcher is, is one of these terms that sort of could go in bucket number one or bucket number three. It depends where you think the term derives, and, and one of the one of the leading candidates is is an Aramaic term that means those who don't sleep. In other words, they watch; they they, they never shut their eyes. They, that's what they do. So it's both a job, but it's also kind of a you know describes the nature of of, of a being. Uh, in in Daniel, it's, it's interesting where you get these the, the term four times. It's in the same chapter. It's Daniel four, where a watcher that is a holy one descends and tells Nebuchadnezzar um, the meaning of, of a dream that he had. And basically the short, this is when, when Nebuchadnezzar is going to go insane for a little while. So the watcher tells him, hey, you're going to go crazy for a while. You're going to eat grass. You're going to look like an animal and act like one. And it's because of your hubris, you know, that, that your God is going to judge you. And what's interesting is, is it says this is all going to happen to you because this is by decree of the watchers, plural. Then a few verses later, it says, this is by decree of the Most High. So it, it tells you, again, God is acting in, in a symbiotic, a partnering relationship with members of the heavenly host to decide what, how to deal with Nebuchadnezzar. And, and again, that, that's how the, the story is presented. It, and, and the metaphor is really useful because it's like, dude, you know, God knows what's going on here in Babylon. <laughs> you know, he has us, you know, we're watchers. It, it's actually part of a wider uh, motif of heavenly books. You know, we think of the Book of Life. That's only one. There are actually like half a dozen of these in the Bible. Another thing you won't hear at church, you know. 
But but God, again, the metaphor isn't that God has Alzheimer's or has a bad memory. And the, the metaphor is designed to, to teach people that God doesn't miss anything. Okay. Everything is being recorded so that when the time of judgment comes, you will have no excuse. We're going to replay your life for you. Okay? So th this is part of that, that, that God is fully aware of Nebuchadnezzar, you, what you're about, who you are, what you're like. And basically, God is going to judge you for a while to, to let you know who's really in control here. You know, that is really, really interesting how the, the, goes, the term goes to they don't close their eyes or they don't sleep. I, I had no idea about that. My knowledge of the watchers is very limited, so that's why I'm asking you these questions. And we've got a bunch of musicians that are weighing in over on the right-hand side of the screen, and I can guarantee you there's going to be a lot of good music coming out of this discussion that we have on theological topics that are not touched by the church quite often. I'd like to touch upon another one, and that is the, the fall of man. Uh, you know, we've, we know from Genesis chapter 3 that man fell because he disobeyed God and he ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this is a theme that has been recounted and lamented in songs by Camelot, Here's to the Fall, and, and songs that are similar to that. Um, but there's been other levels of disobedience as well, uh, especially in the heavens. Can you talk to us about, you know, some of these other rebellions that have occurred in the heavenlies and why they really show the need for a savior to fix this messed up world. This is really a big deal, actually. And, and I, the way I like to jump into this is I, you know, I'll ask people, you know, who seem to be interested in it. Okay, you know, why is the world a, the chaotic mess that it is? Filled with depravity and evil and just, just a mess. You know, chaos at, at an individual all the way up to national, you know, empire scale. And so, if you if you ask the average Christian that question, you're going to get, oh, it's the fall, Mike. Don't you read your Bible? Well, sure, but if you ask the average first century Jew, okay, who's living when 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 Jesus, you know, was incarnated, if you asked him the same question, it is not the answer you would get. The answer you would get is, well, there's actually three reasons why the world is the chaotic mess that it is. It's because we have three human and supernatural rebellions going on, really in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. The first one is the one everybody knows, the fall, like the fall of man, but, but that was precipitated by a supernatural being that becomes known later as Satan. Uh, it's not called Satan in Genesis 3, it's the serpent. But that's, you know, there's a divine being in God's household. Eden is God's dwelling, his abode. It's part of what ancient Near Eastern scholars call the cosmic mountain motif. Eden is not only just a garden in the Bible, it's also a mountain. Ezekiel 28, it's called both. Why? You know, what, what do those terms mean? And the mountains and gardens were where the gods lived. Where They were the best places. They were paradise, the garden but they were the most remote, you know, away, transcendent from humans, mountains, you know. So we have, we have trouble in God's house, both on a human level and a supernatural level. And the result of this rebellion, first by the celestial one, and then he decides he doesn't like this arrangement where God's creating humans who are like him and also like them, you know, the supernatural beings. 
So he's not going along with this, and he deceives you know, Eve and, and Adam, and we know the rest of the story. The result of this is estrangement from God, Eden is no more, and most fundamentally, death. You don't have a realm of the dead uh, until it, the, the fall. And so the, the Nakash, the serpent who is cast down, he's cast down to the ground. The word there is Eretz, which is also a word for the underworld. So this is why we get the, you know, the underworld. This is why we get a Lord of the dead. Okay, so we have a big problem. Everything dies now instead of everything living. Okay, and this the second rebellion is what happens at Genesis six one through four, really one through five. And I spent a lot of time on this in in, in writing because the, you know, the, the the people who are writing in the New Testament period, in their intertestamental period, they they know that the original Mesopotamian context for this. So we don't need to rabbit trail on that. We probably don't have the time anyway. But basically what you've got is, yeah, you've got the sons of God cohabiting with the daughters of, of men. And that's weird enough that produces the Nephilim and they're, they're bent on Israel's destruction and wipe out you know, the, the messianic seed and all that. But, but the real damage that concerns people in, in the intertestamental period, and this is where you get actually the answer to the question of where do demons come from? Because it's not it's not laid out anywhere specifically in the Bible, but this is actually where you get the answer. You've got a, an issue of the sons of God, the watchers. That's the, the term Second Temple literature uses for this event in Genesis six. They not only do what they do with with women and the Nephilim and all the weird stuff, but they teach humans basically how to more efficiently destroy themselves. So this is where you get drugs. This is where you get weapons of warfare. It's where you get, uh, you know, an increase in promiscuity. It's where you get idolatry and astrology. This a whole grocery list of things that you know, actually get listed out for us in this literature and harkens back to an older Mesopotamian you know, story. So this is the big concern. And so you've got depravity permeating the culture. And then on the other hand, you've got the Nephilim thing going on, physically destroying the culture. When you kill a Nephilim, all the, all the source material of the period agrees. The disembodied spirit of one of the dead Nephilim is where demons come from. It's why they're called bastard spirits in the Dead Sea Scrolls. That's what they are. They're, they're a half-hybrid thing. It's why they're called unclean spirits, because the uncleanness of Leviticus, that whole concept deals with forbidden mixturing. Okay? There's an intelligent vocabulary here that we never get to, again, in, in church, but it makes sense, again, if you, you know, you know what, what's going on in the backstory. The third re rebellion is what happens at Babel. So cr the average Christian is taught about Genesis 3. When, they, when you get to Genesis 6, it's like there's nothing supernatural going on here because that's too weird. So they're taught not to see it there, even though Peter, 2 Peter 2, refers to the angels that sinned at the time of Noah, like, hello, this, this is what he's talking, he's quoting it. And he obviously thinks there's there ain't, you know, supernatural beings, but we're not, we're not going to look at that. And then the third, we never even get to at all. Because if you read the Tower of Babel story in Genesis 11, you're not going to find angels or supernatural beings there. But if you go to Deuteronomy 32.8, okay, you will, if you're reading, if you're translation, if you're lucky enough to have a translation that follows the Dead Sea Scrolls. Because then it says, when the Most High divided up the nations and he fixed their boundaries, this is what happens at Babel, when the nations are divided, humanity is fragmented. He did so according to the number of the sons of God. There's that same line, same term from Genesis 6. It's a different group now. But you've got supernatural beings that are allotted to the nations and the nations to those beings. And this is where the Old Testament 
explains how the other nations get pantheons, why they worship other gods instead of Yahweh, and, and all this whole thing. So the second rebellion is the permeation of human depravity. The third rebellion is, is the fragmentation of humanity and the rise of idolatry and worshiping other gods. And this is where Daniel gets his theology, the prince of the supernatural princes in Daniel 10. He gets it from Deuteronomy 32. These are the principalities and powers of Paul in the New Testament. Paul uses principality, powers, rulers, thrones, dominions, all this vocabulary. What do all of Paul's terms have in common? They are terms of geographical dominion, which makes perfect sense in light of Deuteronomy 32 and what happens at the Babel event. So you've, you've got a number of problems. And if you believe this, if you're a, a Jew living at Jesus' day and you believe all three rebellions that involve supernatural beings and humans and human depravity and fragmentation, all this stuff, if you believe this, you expect that when the Messiah comes, he is not coming to just fix the death problem. He's not coming just to bring you back to God so that you're no longer estranged and give you everlasting life so that, that you're going to be part of the resurrection. You expect the Messiah to deal with human depravity. You expect the Messiah to heal the nations and bring them back into the fold, in, into the family of the, of the one true God. You expect the authority that is now held by, the, by the, the powers of darkness, principalities and powers, the gods of the nations of the Old Testament arising from Deuteronomy 32. You expect their authority to be nullified, and you expect their destruction to be impending. Okay, and, and I'm, I'm putting it this way because the New Testament, when it talks about Jesus, places where Jesus goes and what he says when he's at those places have a very deep history in the Old Testament. Some of them relate directly to the Genesis 6 episode. Some of them relate, relate directly to the Babel, the, the, the Gentile issue, the fragmentation of the nations and the principalities and powers. You know, when, one example, when, when Jesus casts out demons, when he's on Jewish turf, they refer to him as the son of David. Okay, that makes sense. It's a messianic title used in the Old Testament. But when he's on Gentile turf, the demons refer to him differently. He's then the son of the Most High. Why the Most High? Because that's the name of the deity that, that goes back to the Babel event when he punished humanity by dividing up the nation and assigning them to these other gods as a, as a punishment. It, it, if you're outside Israelite turf, if you're one of these nations, you know who this is, and you address him in a different way. You know, so, so there's just stuff like this that's sort of running under the text in, in the English Bible that these things have backstories. But, but we never get to the backstories. You know, what some of the stuff Paul says, you know, why does, why does Paul link the resurrection and the ascension with the stripping away of the authority of the principalities and powers? Why, why would he think that? It's because... After the resurrection, we have the ascension, where Christ is restored to the right hand of God, the seat of power. And this is what, why Jesus says when he ascends, the Great Commission, we, we skip verse 18. <laughs> Matthew 28, 18 through 20, not just 19 and 20. Verse 18 says, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. Okay? Wow. That, that's an intentional line. Because up to that point, 
Who's in charge of stuff on the earth? It's the gods of the nations, the principalities and the powers. Not, not anymore. Not anymore. So, again, there's these little things like this that if you know the Old Testament backstory, they're going to jump out at you and you're going, okay, why is it? Why does he say that? You know, what does this place have a history? Did something happen here in the Old Testament that might affect how I read this? You know, the, the gates of hell is, a, is one of my favorites because of where it happens. Caesarea Philippi at the foot of Mount Hermon, which is where the watchers descend to corrupt humanity in Genesis 6. That's, that's where the gates of hell scene plays out. In, in Ugaritic literature, which is cuneiform, you know, culture, you know, outside Israel, they viewed the region Bashan, where this place is, as having as containing gateways to the netherworld, the gates of hell, and they're actually named in the Old Testament. Ashtaroth and Edrei are two of them that show up in Canaanite texts as being gateways to to the realm of the dead. This is this is the region where this happens. So like Jesus goes up there, and, and we have Peter's confession there. And when, when Jesus says, you know, you're Peter, and upon this rock I'm going to build my church, it's not Peter, okay? It's the rock that they're standing in front of. It. It's <laughs> huge if you've ever been there. So ba basically Jesus is saying, yeah, we're going to build the church, and I'm, I'm going to basically pave over Satan's domain and turn it into a tomb, Okay. So it's a provocation. Then six days later, it says they go up into a high mountain with Peter, James, and John. Well, there's only one high mountain there. It's Mount Hermon. What happens there? It's the transfiguration. Oh, wow. Wow. This picks Mount Hermon to unveil himself as if to say, here I am. Got <laughs> it? You know? <laughs> and then after they come off Mount Hermon, the gospel writers say, from this point on, Jesus began to teach his disciples that he needed to go to Jerusalem and die. Like, like that had that was a new thing, and the disciples freak out. Of course, it's like, what do you mean you're going to go die? We just poke Satan in the eye, and we, you know, we poke, you know, Mount, the watchers in the eye. You know, what? what are you, you're going to die? And six days later is the triumphal entry, and a week after that, he's dead. Why? Because he, that's what has to happen. He's picking a fight. He must die because you can't cure the death problem, okay, without a resurrection. And you can't do a resurrection unless there's a death. So, I mean, you, you, Paul says, had the rulers of this world known, this is 1 Corinthians 2, verses 6 through 8, had the rulers of this world known, again, these cosmic powers, what the result of the crucifixion would have been, it basically it's, the, it's their death sentence. They never would have done it. They're, they're not idiots. They never would have crucified the Lord of glory. So Jesus knows what the plan is. I mean, they know who he is. They know what the end game is, that silly kingdom of God thing. You know? but, but they don't know like, like how he's going to pull it off. And, and, and he's, not, he's not telling them either. So he, when the time is right, he's got, he goes and picks a fight and says, it's game on. It, it's time to get this done. I mean, that, it's the heart of spiritual warfare. But you, but everything I just described, there are people in church know these stories, but but they don't have any sense for how this is spiritual warfare. This is a provocation. 
And really what I'm seeing, Dr. Heiser, is that understanding this is really a key to understanding spiritual warfare and engaging in spiritual warfare very skillfully. Uh, a lot of the things that I learned about spiritual warfare back in the 90s, you know, compared to what you're sharing with us is just complete, absolute you know, nonsense in a lot of ways of, you know, jumping, snorting and shouting and everything like that. But there's just so many keys to this. And we have a comment from Christopher Shelton. He says, wow, loving the depth of the knowledge this evening from Dr. Heiser. The depth of the knowledge is just amazing here. And there's just so much to go back and some things I want to talk about. I want to go back to the Nakash for a moment, the serpent, because in Sunday school, uh, I learned, and then when I taught Sunday school with a flannel graph board at the Baptist church, uh, it was always a snake. Now, what was the Nakash? Was it a talking snake? Was it a demon-possessed snake? What are we talking about here that happened in the Garden yeah. of Eden? Yeah, I, I think there, there, there's a bit of ambiguity, and, and which means that there's also a bit of wiggle room, you know, in, in understanding it. Let, let's just take the term itself. So, I have to remember, in Hebrew, there's no vowels originally. So you've got three consonants that spell nakash, and then you have a definite article appended to it. So it's the nakash, ha-nakash. So if you take that, those three consonants as a noun, it just means the serpent. It's very easy, okay? No problem. That's a legitimate translation. But if nakash is the related verb, then you have something different. The verb means to, to dispense divine knowledge. And so you would have something like the diviner, okay, the, the one who dispenses divine knowledge. Well, that would fit too, because that's what he does. I mean, he, he, he does it deceptively, but that's what he's doing. And then the third option is if, if it's an adjective, then you have something like the shining one, the luminous one, because ad, if it's an adjective, we, we get the same... Uh, it's the same three constants behind the term for shining brass or bronze. So you could have a luminous being who looked like a serpent or, you know, I mean, you can have any number of these things going on. I personally think that they're, they're all on the table. I think we have a double or a triple entendre going on here with the use of the term. Um, but, but when it comes to the, the speech, look, ancient people knew that snakes didn't talk. I mean, I could show you Egyptian texts, Mesopotamian texts. They, they know that when, when animals do things that animals like really can't do, they're not, they don't literalize it. Oh, well, this snake could talk. Oh, maybe this like, you know, gets in the way of Darwin's evolution. No, you know, <laughs> you know, they're, not, they're not thinking that at all. They're thinking the gods are up to something. They're thinking we have a divine presence here that is either manipulating this animal or is coming to us in this form. So it is a supernatural being at the heart of it. Now we kind of know this already from the New Testament because Paul says Satan can come as an angel of light and you know, transform himself. And, but, but somehow when we get to the Old Testament, we never think that thought. And that, again, that's because of tradition. You know, where we're taught to only think literally in terms of a snake and stuff like that. And if people are wondering, well, what about the judgment that he's, you know, cast down to the to the ground in the underworld? Well, again, I, I since we're dealing with a supernatural being, if you go to over to Isaiah 14, you have the same, a lot of the shared vocabulary with Genesis 3 in, in Hebrew. And there we have a rebellion in the divine council. You have Halal ben Shakar, the shining one, the son of the dawn, who wants to be like the most high. I will be like the most high. Okay, I, I'm going to command the council, and he's punished for it. He's cast down to the ground again. 
So if that's the case, the, the, the punishment is really metaphorical. You want to be above the stars of God, Isaiah 14 language? How about if we put you below every created thing? How about if we just reverse that? How about if the, the animals get to walk and poop on you? You know, like, like, I mean, you're down underneath them now. How about that? So it, it, it's a humiliation. Wow. But it also, because of, of the human failure, we get the realm of the dead. This becomes the kingdom of the dead uh, because this is where you put the dead, you put them in the ground. You know, So there's a lot of things going on in there. It's not just, oh, I guess back at one time snakes could talk and had legs or something. It, it, it's just foolish literalism that, that misses a lot of the nuancing that's going on. A lot of the things, the thoughts that are going to run through the ancient person's head, we completely miss because we're reading it again as a modern, you know, trying to sort of fill in gaps that we have. In our right. Right. And I want to go back to the fall again. There's a couple other things I want to ask about that, especially about the fall of the one third of the angels from heaven. I have to do a little bit of heavy metal theology here for our viewers and our listeners. 1997 Nightwish put out their album, Angels Fall First. Is this theologically correct? Did angels fall before man fell? Yeah, there's, there's actually no, this is, a, this is such a common idea, but there's actually a, not a shred of biblical evidence for it. So this is my go-to example for how tradition gets taught as doctrine. You don't, th there is nothing in, in, in the Bible that has a fall of the angels prior to the Genesis 3 episode that we just talked about, or prior to Genesis 1, or between Genesis 1, 1, and 1, 2, you know, there's nothing like that. In fact, if, if you actually look look up the word, you know, angel and the words three or third, they only occur together in one place in the Bible, and that's Revelation 12. And if you read Revelation 12, the first six or seven verses, you find out that the war breaks out in heaven at, in, the respond, in response to what? In response to the birth of the Christ child, which is considerably after you know, Genesis, it's the it only place you actually get the third three, you know, third language associated with angels in the entire body. But somehow we got this idea. And it, it, I think a lot of it is like Milton's Paradise Lost because that was such an important book in Western culture. Um, again, it's not sinister. It just, it, it was made up to, it, to answer this question. It was sort of taking a stab at it, and the book became so popular. It just it just sort of caught on, you know. It, it's not like, I mean, it's it's not good theology, but it's not going to be like turn everybody into heretics to think. Right. It's not, it's not like that at all. But there there really isn't any biblical data for it. So a good thing to say when you're really questioning things of scripture is not just make stuff up, but say I don't know. Just just be open. Right. You know, and and that's. You know, I could be a wealthy man <laughs> if I if I disguised speculation as Bible teaching, but I just won't do it. I, I detest it. So what I what I try to do is is I try to to get people to to get sort of absorbed with the idea that look, if we're going to call our theology biblical, we ought to be able to trace it to the Bible. That doesn't seem like an unreasonable thing to ask. And if you can't find something, just say, I don't know. Scripture's silent. 
and, and now I'm going to speculate, but I'm going to tell you I'm speculating. I'm not going to, again, not tell you and then call it Bible teaching. We're not going to do that. Because, you know, Scripture doesn't have answers, you know, to, to a number of things. The, the Bible never claims to be an exhaustive repository of everything that ever happened or could happen or everything that's real and true. It, it never claims that, but, but somehow we, we sort of treat it that way. I was on a podcast today, believe it or not, talking about uh, if, if there was an extraterrestrial disclosure, does that harm Christianity? You know, and, and this is, a, this is a, a really good example of this where, you know, people try to, to answer these sorts of questions. And one of, the, one of the impulse responses is, well, extraterrestrials can't be real because they're not in the Bible. Well, like neither is toilet paper. You know, microwaves, <laughs> your cell phone, it's not in the Bible either, you know. It's, it's the dumbest thing in the world, you know, when you really think about it. But yet people will approach questions like this in that manner. And it, it, it's just astonishing, but I've, I've seen it so many times that it's a reflex. But you've got to get people to think about how they're thinking you know, to, to, to really be helpful when, it, you know, when you get a question like that. Why do you think that reflex exists? What do you think conditions people to do that? I, you know, ultimately, I, I think it's because of the way we're taught about the Bible. In other words, it, it's the way we're taught about how we got the Bible. When I'm, let me just unwrap that a little, a little further. We, the way that bibliology, the, the, the doctrine of inspiration is taught in the average church today, the average serious church, anyway, is that the Bible just sort of dropped from heaven. Like, like the biblical prophets and the writers were, were they went into trances and like the matrix, you know, the, God plugged something into their heads and then the, the book gets downloaded and the, you know, the prophet comes out of it and looks at the table and says, oh, I can't wait to read that. You know, like, like, like the, the brain is disengaged. In a nutshell, we treat the Bible like it's a channeled book. Okay, that's for UFO cults, all right? That's not mm -hmm. biblical theology. Right. So if, if you're taught to think that way, then you get, it, it sort of fosters this impression that whatever's in there is true. And therefore, whatever's not in there is false. I mean, and and, and that, that's a false way of thinking about the content. You, you forget that the Bible, every book had an agenda. I mean, that the writer had a purpose in writing. He has an audience in mind. There's something that needs to be addressed. Okay, it's not about, again, forming this, this data collective that is, is the culmination, culminative record of everything that's true. And that everything that's not mentioned in here must be false. That it, it sort of defies the, the ordinariness of, of really what the Bible is. And so I, I, I like to say, look, if you strip the humanity out of the Bible, you undermine the doctrine of inspiration. Because mm -hmm. we, we, we've turned inspiration into an X-Files episode or, or, or channeling or something like that, when the reality is God is far more interested in the product of Scripture than that view allows. Okay, if, if it's a channeled book, then God was interested in giving us information occasionally for a few seconds every every. 200 years or something, you know, right. as opposed to God providentially 
oversaw the lives of every hand that would ever touch this thing. He's providentially preparing them in their education, their life experience, the circumstances of life, good and bad, what bad things that happened to them, you know, just the, the whole collective. God is in the process of molding this person and preparing them for the time and place when he is going to need them and prompt them to write something down for posterity. They are fully capable, fully equipped to do a good job. God has seen to it. And so now it's time to sit down at your table, pick up the pen, and write that letter. In other words, God engineers the circumstances of this person's life to make them the prime candidate to produce this thing, whatever portion of Scripture it is. That, that's, what, that, that's what I call a, a providential view of inspiration. God is in the process the whole time. And most of the time it's invisible. It's the unseen hand of providence. You know, and all of our lives work this way. This is why I like movies like, you know, It's a Wonderful Life or, you know, these, you know, you get to see what life would have been like if I had made the left turn instead of the right turn. Well, all of our lives are like that. They, they turn on things that we don't even think about. And for the Christian, really for anybody who, who's a theist, the question is, do you believe that not only humans, flesh and blood humans, influence the, these decisions that not only you make, but the hundred decisions that preceded the one you made? Okay, is it only a human level activity or does God have other agents, other means at his disposal that you never see to influence and create the context for an event for you to make that decision? And when you don't make the right decision, is God interested enough to try again? In other words, to, to, to move you to make the right decision because he wants to partner with you. He wants you to be part of this bigger thing that he's building. That's a biblical worldview. You know, we, we, we make the mistake of thinking God is only present in the spectacular. Okay, God is present most of the time. In, we will never know un unless we could take that retrospective look like the movies, you know, do. You know, that, that's really how life operates. And, and, and the inspiration of Scripture is part of that, that God is engaged the whole way, not just zapping people, you know, or channeling books, you know. And it's really important for apologetics, you know, but we don't need the rabbit trail there as to how scripture was put together. But if, if you just think it's a channeled book, then you're going to think bad thoughts about, you know, you're not, you're not going to think well about questions, you know, like, like we, what we've been talking about. You're not going to be able to process the question intelligently uh, if you have just a really poor view of how we even got the thing. And unfortunately, Dr. Heiser, I believe a lot of the skeptics have latched on to the type of thinking that has is that reflex that you're talking about and gives them the fodder for the for the skepticism. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, skeptics, you know, just I mean, you're, you're, you're friendly skeptics, you're militant atheists. I mean, so especially in the militant crowd, all they know how to do is use the caricatures. They, they don't add any any clear thinking on their own part. They don't try to really reimagine what's a better way to think about this issue. Well, that would take work, you know, and it might influence the way they think. It, you know, it might take them in another direction. So what we're going to do is use the caricature. Right. It's easy. It's lazy. Right. You know, but it, 
there's there's just plenty of that to go around. <laughs> you know, there, there's lots of we give them lots of material. You know, we do that's our fault. You know, for doing that, we do. Yeah, you know, I want to talk about music for a minute because one of the things that we talk about on this live stream and one of the things that I, I talk about quite a bit is how music affects the spiritual realm. And I understand that King David and King Solomon used music to exercise, I'm talking about casting out, not having them do calisthenics, but to exercise demons. What examples are there in scripture of music being used to exercise demons in spiritual warfare? Can you share with us about that a little bit? Because I know we've got a lot of viewers that are very interested in that. Yeah, this goes back to the the episodes with David and Saul, you know, as, as you specifically mentioned. Those are the most obvious ones where you know, the, the, the evil spirit, you know, was sent by God to afflict Saul. Now, the, the word there for evil can denote a spiritual entity. It, it could be something like First Kings 22 when at the divine council meeting, when it's time for Ahab to die, a spirit steps forward and says, oh, I got a great idea. I'm going to be a lying spirit in the mouth of Ahab's prophets. That'll get him to go up to this place where he's going to, he's going to get killed. And God says, yeah, that'll work. And so it could be that kind of situation where God is, is assigning a member of the spiritual world to judge evil, in this case, Saul. The, the, the word could also mean just a, a, general, um, a general catastrophic psychological you know, condition. It doesn't have to involve a spiritual being. But in, in, you know, scholars are kind of divided on this, but that's probably the best example when it comes to, to music. I mean, you, you'll you'll see music, you know, used in other contexts. You you do have you do have music in divine council meetings, believe it or not, you know, like Revelation four and five. Um, you you have singing. You know, Paul mentions you know so, uh, singing to yourselves in, with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And if you look at the context there, it's not really church services necessarily. It's something broader than that, just individual Christians. So I, I think. You know, my own predilection here is that by whatever means, I'm not a musician, so I don't know anything technical about it. I'm, I'm sort of a music moron. But I think music needs to be used to convey truth, that is to speak truth to lies. I think speaking truth to lies is at the heart of spiritual warfare, whether it's an individual, you know, confronting maybe a, an exorcism context or if it's something different or something bigger. And that if you can use music to bring back to remembrance, or I hate to use a word like this because it sounds negative, but implant good thinking, you know, maybe a lyric or something like that into someone's mind, that can be very useful when, when they're in these situations where Either they're under oppression or they're having to deal with something external that we need, we need to let this person know what the truth is. We also need to let the entity know that we know what the truth is about them. So I, I think, you know, music can be part of that. I don't know if that, if that answers your question or not. It does. And can you, can you go back to where you, uh, what are the verses again where music is? used in the divine council meetings, where can that be found? Four and five, you know, you've got, you've got hymns, you know, to the lamb revelation four and five is a divine council passage. You know, it's, it's just divine council is fancy language for a meeting of the heavenly host with God. You know, and if, if you read the passage, that's what you have. 
in Hebrews 11, you have believers who become part of a festal gathering of angels, okay? Well, if it's festal, it's probably got music. Again, it's, it's another divine counsel sort of thing. Um, when God meets with, with his heavenly host, which includes humans, you know, humans that are glorified, this is our destiny to become part of the reconstituted council, to fill in the gaps, to restore what has been lost. This was the original plan, and God's never left the original plan, to have us with him on sacred, in sacred space. That, that, that's the whole idea of Eden. So, you know, you have these passages, Revelation 4 and 5, Hebrews 11, the great cloud of witnesses and festal gathering with the host of angels and whatnot. It's a celebration. You know, music is going to be part of that. So, you know, positively, you, you, you have that going on. But I think, you know, it, it can also be something that is, is, is sort of a tool of assistance when it comes to either our recollection, our memory, or again, instilling in someone else. And music is a great way to do it. Something that they need to know. A truth they need to know about themselves, about the spiritual, the spiritual world, um, with, without you know, getting into, you know, identities here and whatnot. But I, there are people I know that, that deal with severely traumatized people, what, what used to be called multiple personality disorder. Now it's dissociative identity, you know, at least these things like this. And, and again, the main strategy is, is you approach people in love. You, you, you speak truth to lies because they have been taught things about themselves and, and about spiritual entities that if you don't know the truth about those entities and their destiny, and they don't want you to know, they want you to think that they still have authority over you, and they do not. Wow. Okay, they do not. So they have to be reminded of this. And any way that you can get this into a person's head and life, so that if they need to draw on it later, that's a good thing. And, and music is, is very obviously a tool, you know, for doing this kind of thing. It, it can mediate it can mediate really deep content in a very brief sort of way, a very memorable sort of way. It just sticks in your in your head. That is that is entirely worth doing. Um, it's it's going to be useful. You never know what what situation a person is going to be in, what they're going to have to draw, and how they're going to remember it. And if if it's good theology, the spirit is going to. It, it just goes in the toolbox that the spirit of God can use and draw on a person you know, to, to remind them of what the truth is and speak truth to lies. That's beautiful. We have a comment from Michelle L. She says, music speaks truth to lies. Yes, that really resonated with her, Dr. Heiser. Thank you for that. We have another comment, and I, I have to ask this question, and you brought it up, and it's something on a lot of people's minds, and even in the harder rock metal community, there's a lot of speculation about these guys, the, the ETs. There is one that exists right here in our studio. He's with me right now. How, how do these things, <laughs> how do extraterrestrials factor into the unseen realm, if at all? Yeah, I, I think if you have a true extraterrestrial, which would be a biological entity, they're not part of the unseen realm, you know, presuming they exist. Uh, I, I don't have a theological problem with, you know, a true biological extraterrestrial existing. I mean, I... I get in, I have two novels, The Facade and The Portent is its sequel, where part of the reason for, for doing those is I like the subject, I piggyback theology onto it, and we get into to why 
just in general terms, this is not, again, a theological problem. Now, that's referring to, again, real biological entities. That I've been, in the, I've been in the fringe community for 20 years, so I've read a lot of the contactee literature. I've read a lot of the abduction literature. The messaging can be very sinister and specifically anti-Christian. I mean, you never, you never hear Muhammad's theology or person redefined in, a, in contactee narratives. It's always Jesus. You know, isn't that a coincidence? I don't think so. But there, there's part of this question where people wonder, maybe we don't have a biological entity. Maybe we have a sinister you know, supernatural presence that's presenting itself as such. And, and to me, that's on the table, too. The, the, the UFO question is very complicated. You, you, it really belongs in about six or seven buckets. There is no one aspect of, there, there's no one bucket that all this fits into. And the UFO community itself is quite divided on that because they recognize that. So in principle, I don't have a theological problem with there being ETs. It used to be in the history of the church that that, that was almost a doctrinal requirement. A lot of people don't know that. Really? In the Middle Ages, up until the 1700s, the, the, the church was quite positively disposed to the idea of there being other worlds. And the reason was, is because if you limited life to one world, that, again, th certain theologians taught that that limited God's omnipotence. You were, you were, you were giving him less power than he really had. So the, it was called the principle of plenitude. Of course, there are other worlds. God could, of course, do that because he's God. Now, before that, it, it wasn't popular, but that was more or less for philosophical reasons because Plato didn't like it. And early church theologians loved Plato. And so we're going to side with Plato okay. you know all that. Now, afterwards, in, you know, when you get in the 1700s and the 1800s, opinion changed for different reasons. And the, the Protestants typically didn't like the idea because they believed, well, you know, some, most of them, not all of them, there were, there were some exceptions here, but most of them believed that, well, if you have extraterrestrials, then you have to have Jesus incarnate on every planet and die on every planet. And that's multiple means of salvation, so they didn't like that. But, but the positive view dominated for centuries um, until the, the 1700s. And then, you know, that was one of the reasons Thomas Paine, the famous atheist, use the, the, the issue of other worlds to mock Christianity for the very reasons that the Protestants didn't like it. Oh, Jesus, I guess, has to go and die on all these planets. I mean, he used it as a foil. Um, Darwin came along, and then the question got married to evolution. And so a lot of you know, Christians didn't like evolution, didn't know what to do with that. And so the, the enthusiasm for other worlds just went down the tubes you know, when it got married to Darwin. And there's all sorts of reasons for this. When when you get in the 20th century, the 50s onward, then you start getting these contactee and abductee accounts. And, and they, they can be very sinister, very demonic, very violent. Um, John Keel, the Mothman Prophecies guy, he's the guy who wrote that book. He also wrote UFOs Operation Trojan Horse. He was not a Christian, but he was, he was right down the line. This is, this is demonology. Okay. So he's often referred to by Christians who are into this subject as being kind of a, a non-Christian, non-confessional backup system for this idea. I, I, don't, I don't hold that idea, even though I do think the mess, the, the contactee stuff and the abduction stuff I think is, is evil. I think, I think that very well could be demons and demonic. Okay, I, I'm, I'm there for those things, but that does not encompass 
the wider question of could there be a genuine biological extraterrestrials. That's something different and distinct. It's related but distinct. So yeah, I, I think it'd be I think it'd be neat, presuming that it's not Independence Day. You know, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't I don't think we have any we have any evidence for intelligent extraterrestrial life to this point because you can't use UFO stuff as your answer. You can't answer one unknown. What is that? You can't take that unknown and, and answer the other one. Oh, it must be extraterrestrials. Well, how do we know? Well, it's because this other thing we don't know. Right. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense. If you have a, a biological claim, you need biological evidence. It's okay. a reasonable you know, thing. Yeah. Well, all I know is so long as he doesn't steal my Reese's pieces, we're doing okay. We're, we're, we're quite all right over here. He looks so much nicer than the alien I have in my fringe bob studio. <laughs> But we, we, we love to buy him like undies and underoos. <laughs> I, I have a Giorgio Ancient Aliens t shirt that I Aliens! It's <laughs> our favorite prop. <laughs> Final question for you this evening, because I know this is on the minds of a lot of people and i want to rewind a little bit back to the 1980s with um some good old iron maiden with the the number of the beast um the antichrist from your scriptural study do you see the antichrist as a person a hybrid person something else possibly an et entity mixed in there and then the final question is the the mark of the beast is that something that from your studies that people are knowingly going to take or is that going to be something that they're going to be given and not even realize it yeah the, the second one's actually a little tougher than the first the, none of the biblical writers have have extraterrestrials on the brain okay they don't you know we're still living in the geocentric universe, you know, there. So they're not thinking that. All the typology is consistent that we don't have a, we don't have a false Christ in the sense that now we have a, a, a deity man who's evil and, you know, like a counterfeit virgin birth. This is the stuff Hollywood does. But nobody's thinking that. The idea is that since, since the Messiah in the Old Testament was perceived as, again, the, the king of Israel, the, the, the great warrior that's going to throw off the Gentile powers and all this stuff. And the idea was that the Antichrist is, is sort of the great end times enemy of, of this Christ. So it's a human. Uh, if, you, if you're looking at Daniel 10, and, or not Daniel 10, but Daniel 11 on into 12, everybody, regardless of eschatological system, recognizes that this describes the period of Antiochus the fourth Antiochus Epiphanes who was a man he was a Gentile uh, who opposed again the Jewish kingdom desecrated the temple the abomination of desolation that, that that's the template for Antichrist so it's a Gentile guy who's you know in a league with false gods or something like that Satan and the, the number is, is a little more difficult because on the one hand this goes into this has a context. <clears throat> this it's 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 the number of a man. You could also translate the phrase a human number. There's a lot of ways you could take that. Some people think it's it's literally a stamp or a barcode or something like that that somehow says six six six. The early church entertained the idea that what, what they were really talking about was a magic square. 
some of your listeners will no doubt know what magic squares are. Um, the magic square for for Jesus was seven seven seven. It, it, it's Sudoku, you know, where all the all the lines, vertical, you know, they all add up to the same thing. Seven 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 was the the magic square for Jesus. Eight 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 was God. Six 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 was something less than God and Jesus, an inferior power um, that had something to do with solar worship, the sun. Okay. So is that it? Well, maybe it could be. I mean, there, there are certain reasons why that might make sense. But it's also part of something called the name theology in biblical theology. To bear the name means to align yourself, to align your loyalty with mm. Israelites had the name pronounced over them in the Aaronic blessing. The, the, the command about not taking the, the Lord's name in vain, it, it actually, taking is actually the word for bearing. You do not bear the name of the Lord in vain. In other words, you don't represent the Lord in a worthless or, you know, irresponsible manner. So that the idea of bearing the name is really an issue of, of assigning your believing loyalty to someone who that name represents. And that may very well be what we have in, in, in the book of Revelation. This is the name of the beast. See, the number is also called the name of the beast. The mark of the beast, bearing the name. So in other words... You, you could be bearing the name, bearing the mark, if you turn from Christ and assign your loyalty to something else. In other words, the Antichrist, okay, himself, or, or Satan, who the Antichrist works for. That's a lot more ethereal and sort of non-corporeal, non-physical, non-visual than the sign. Uh, I don't know that that's the case. I don't think you can rule out a physical mark, okay, because, you know, you have examples of that, too, you know, in, in the Old Testament. Name theology was also about ownership, and, and you, could, you could mark people, you know, in the Old Testament. So that, that, that's still on the table. But I, I think, you know, any of those, those things are ways to think about the, the mark of the beast. But ultimately, when, when you really get down to brass tacks, ultimately it, it is about I'm following the beast, the Antichrist, and his Lord instead of Christ, instead of Jesus. I'm, I'm making that decision. It's not something forced, okay? It, it, it's somebody making that decision to take the mark, i.e. to follow this, this cosmic power. So I think that's really the, at the heart of it. No matter how it manifests itself, that's what people are doing. So people will then have a conscious choice, and they will know what they're doing. Just a choice, yep. How, however that manifests itself, it, it'll, it'll be their choice. Wow. Dr. Heiser, thank you so much for joining us this evening. I know that there's going to be a ton now of awesome Christian hard rock and metal songs written based upon tonight's discussion with what we talked about tonight. It's been so insightful. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to get to everybody's comments, but uh, thank you for everybody for participating this evening. And we're going to be back on Tuesday with a new band, Boiling Point, for a pre-release party. And we're going to be checking out some music and talking about how they serve God even beyond the music. So it's going to be a good time. Again, Dr. Heiser, thank you so much. And what is the uh, name of your podcast and where, where can people catch it? Yeah, the, the podcast, I have, I have two of them. The big one is Naked Bible Podcast, uh, spelled just like it sounds, nakedbiblepodcast.com. We do biblical studies there. I have a 
a smaller podcast. We're only 22 or 23 episodes in. We're, we're almost, we're about 380 on Naked Bible. The other one's called Peer Anormal, where we talk about paranormal subjects from the perspective of peer-reviewed research on those subjects. There is such a thing. Our last episode was on intercessory prayer. So we actually looked at the studies you know, that, that got published about that. And there's a panel. We talk about the, you know, the research and then, you know, how does, how does that affect the way we think? You know, if it's real, you know, what, if it's real or not, or, or how could it be real? What are they doing here? So those are the two podcasts. I have Fringe Pop, the YouTube channel Fringe Pop, where I just, again, just like it sounds, uh, Fringe Pop 321, where we, do videos, I do, you know, video sessions or interviews on really fringy subjects like ancient aliens and ET and all this sort of stuff. It's, it's across the board. It's, we have about 120 episodes of that, but the nerve center is drmsh.com. That's where you can sort of find links to everything I'm into. The books of course are on Amazon, but drmsh.com is the homepage. Well, I want to thank you for blowing my theological bubble in my life and opening up my mind to a whole lot of different things. (laughs) Fellow travelers, you know. (laughs) Thank you so much. And everybody, check out his podcast, check out his YouTube channels, and definitely pick up a copy of The Unseen Realm, Recovering the Supernatural Worldview of the Bible. It is an awesome, awesome book. And I do have to do this for you, sir. Um, Everything here that runs through this studio is approved by our producer, my Boston Terrier, Mac the Metal Dog, and everything that you do is Mac the Metal Dog approved here at Raven's Heart. So thank you very, very much. I love dogs, man. (laughs) (laughs) All right, everybody, until Tuesday night at 7 p.m., peace out and rock on. I will see you then. Lithoscry.com